overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. In three, two, one. We are now live with another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. The podcast focused on helping you live healthier so that you can do what you want to do. Today, we have a very special guest on the show, my personal PM&R mentor, Dr. Aslan Tariq. Dr. Tariq is currently the Chief Clinical Officer of Integrated Rehab Consultants, which is the largest private PM&R group in the country, and he's also the founder and owner of Optimal Health Solutions here in Naperville, Illinois. Aside from being a physician, he does a lot for the community in terms of volunteering, mentorship, and is also a huge advocate for the field of physiatry in general. Um, he is incredibly passionate about helping people improve their health, as well as about entrepreneurship and uh, Fun fact, he actually had an EMR solutions company when he was back still in medical school. So uh, it's going to be a very interesting episode. And without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, I'm going to give you a little more background uh, before that, maybe hopefully to encourage uh, other students, me or other listeners out there. So I've had a number of barriers in my life. So when I was uh, 17, I was living in Pakistan. I did my high school out there and my parents still lived there, actually. So I decided to move to the U.S. I get my undergrad degree. I was 18 in New York. Uh, fresh off the boat, as they call it, and then pretty much had to learn the language, learn the, the curriculum, learn the way of education, and um, had to kind of uh, be super determined and obviously very focused to get through and then uh, finish undergrad and then apply to medical school, got into medical school, obviously here. But throughout my life, I've had a number of barriers that I've had to overcome and it's made me a stronger person. I've had a number of failures and I think it's only the failures that make you the person that you are. I mean, I'm somewhat envious of people who pretty much had it easy and they aced their, uh, you know, SATs or their, uh, you know, MCAT and got into an Ivy school and got the best, best potential residency. But I feel like my failures have made me the person who I am versus my, my success. But um, those failures have made me an entrepreneur because I've always had to think out of the box and always had to go above and beyond. And, well, you know, some of these things obviously I've talked to you about already, but uh, the person that I am is because of my failures. And I, I tell, I encourage students and residents, anybody else to learn how to fail. Because if you've never failed, you don't want your first failure to be, uh, you know, after finishing training and being an attending, because you really don't know how to manage it at that point. But I'm sure you guys understand, like, you know, you've, you've messed up in exams and that kind of stuff. But anyway, that's kind of a background of my mm-hmm. And I think it's, we'll talk about entrepreneurship later on in this podcast because it's a huge thing that is a part of your life. But um, that's kind of also common with like the immigrant mentality where a lot of things aren't necessarily handed to you. Like if someone was born here, they're going through this system. So you kind of have to think out of the box, find your own solutions to things. And those people seem to end up being much better entrepreneurs in the end because they are trained in adversity. They know how to handle it. And then in the end, they provide a lot of solutions and do a lot of good and provide value to people. Leading off of that, um, you talked a little bit about 
about that, but what are your passions within medicine? Why'd you go into medicine? And essentially, why do you do what you do? So uh, when I moved from Pakistan, initially, I wasn't really con- considering pre-med as my my goal. I, my, my family has a business back home and I wanted to just get a degree and go back. And that's why I did an undergrad in business. But halfway through, I had an opportunity to rotate at a, or basically do orienta- uh, volunteering at a hospital. And it was a simple thing. I wanted to use that as an exposure to medicine. And that led me to working as a CNA summer job in a nursing home. And I really realized like how much work there is to being a CNA. And I, I was lucky enough to be a physician who was working in the CNA. I mean, working in the hospital. And then he encouraged me to basically, you know, step up and take more science classes and go to pre-med and that opened up that. And then once I realized that I could make a difference in people's lives, it was very, very, I guess, you know, satisfying to actually do that versus like, you know, being in business or being in IT and tech and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That led to me doing a post back and then going to medical school and on and on. But, you know, one of the things that I've learned, and because like I said, immigrant, uh, you know, mentality is uh, I was on by myself and pretty much there was a lot of pressure on me that anything, especially because my, I don't have any family here, that I had to build my own. And if I failed, you know, my backup was to go back home, but I mm-hmm. had to mm-hmm. make my own. And for that to happen, I had to go above and beyond and work as harder than anybody else and you know, think outside the box and uh, ignore the failures and just keep stepping it up. Uh, and I'm lucky that, you know, throughout my life, I've typically tried to take the path that people don't take. So whether it's going to DO school versus MD school, are going to PMNR, which no one even knows PMNR is, or, or, <laughs> Especially right, that or time. starting my own practice, or you just don't start your own practice, or starting a business while I'm in medical school, or you know anything else that I've done in my life, I've always tried to take the path that people don't want to take usually. And I feel like that's, that's the reason for my success, because I feel like I have all these different, um, basically skills that other people might not have. And they're like, how do you do that? I'm like, well, just because I'm, I'm self-taught, I, I go above and beyond. I try to learn everything and I have different skill sets. So I'll talk more about skill sets later on. And that's something that I want medical students to really have is don't just be that science person or just that I want to do medicine. You, you know, you have the brains, you have the, the time, you know, you, you do have the time. And even though it sounds like you don't have the time, a lot of times, oh, I'm always studying, but you have the time to do other stuff. For example, you're one of the examples of Jason is, but you can gain more skills. You should know how to code. You should know how to set up a website. Even if you're in medicine and even if you work in the hospital setting, you should know those things. Um, and it's easy. It's not that hard. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, will resonate with our listeners, which hopefully will have a, you know, a, a wide variety, medical students, doctors, just everyday folks as well, um, is that non-traditional route for things. Uh, like I myself had a similar route. I was um, actually planning to pursue a PhD in exercise science and then uh, worked full-time um, doing nutrition consultations and coaching at a gym and then did a post back as well and then applied to medical school. So in the same, same as you, I feel like there were a lot of failures along that path that kind of forced me to uh, kind of alter things and learn. And I think that's a great kind of almost like failing is a skill. Like you learn how to fail and then use it as a positive instead of just letting it just bury you. So, and I think the earlier you experience that in this process that we're in is, is better. Like you said, I think the, the, faster you fail and learn how to deal with it, the more you can use it as a launch pad in the future. Absolutely. I knew people in my medical school who had never failed, who always aced their classes. And the first time they had a failure, it was a big shock for them. And actually some of them dropped out. 
So this is going to handle the pressure. But I knew that, like you said, you know, if you have earlier failures, it makes you the person who you are. So you persevere, you work extra hard, you you kind of uh, find ways to motivate yourself. You know, sometimes the failure can be a big motivator. For some people who are not able mm-hmm. to uh, come back from failure, it, it's tough. They can't really succeed in life because life is full of failures. Agree. Yeah. I think my biggest failure during medical school is probably, um, getting like a 50% on my first histology exam. And it's not like the largest failure, but even then it kind of went the preventive route of making sure it doesn't happen right. again. And, uh, really kind of hunkered down and fixed my studying strategy and whatnot after that. And it really transformed, uh, I guess my medical school tra- trajectory from what it could have been to what it is now. So failure is definitely a huge teacher. And I think that's very undervalued. People talk about it a lot that failure is a great teacher, but no one puts themselves out there to either experience failure or to change themselves after failure happens and go that like preventive route of making sure this doesn't happen again and maybe changing uh, their trajectory. Yeah, and I, it, a lot more now, sorry, uh, is the imposter syndrome. You guys know about that? That's oh, yeah. I mean, much more of a buzzword now. When I was in medical school or undergrad, no one even thought about that. But I actually felt that, you know, I don't know if you guys have felt that, but I felt that I don't oh, belong sure. in this medical school. You know, I don't belong. I don't, uh, you know, just, I can't be a doctor if I fail, you know. But the person who comes last in medical school is still a doctor and the person who's the first is still, still a physician. Mm-hmm. So the imposter syndrome is a significant issue. I think it's more common now. I'm hearing a lot more in medical school at pre-meds as well. Uh, I don't know if you guys see that or not. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's one of those things that, like, for me, that those experiences happen, like, in the application process to medical school. So that had totally changed my mindset going in. But uh, personally, I had a struggle getting, like, I got in on my first try, but I was rejected by vast majority of schools I applied to. Um, my post back was riddled with some adversity and, like, just poor decisions on my part, trying to work full time and do some other things. But, like, I think getting to medical school that I prepared that. I was already in that mindset of like, okay, I, I doubt that like almost not making it was my failure of like, okay, now I'm ready to, mm-hmm. to tackle this thing and handle it, handle that adversity. So in another sense, I think that, you know, as we are talking about the preventive medicine um, side of things on this podcast, I think so many people experience failure with a diet, with an exercise program, with their health. Um, and then they don't know how to bounce back. So I think learning how to fail in that sense is good too. Like, oh, well, you know, I, I did an exercise for the last four weeks. It went off my exercise plan. Like, how do you deal with that? How do you then get the ball rolling again and go back to those good habits? I think like failing is going to happen at some point in health and life and business and all that stuff. So definitely a a very applicable concept in so many areas. And that's exact same mindset that I have for my patients. Exactly. That's why I'm talking about talking about failures because I, I train my patients to learn how, how, what to do when they fail. Like, you know, because a lot of times their goals are, you know, I'm going to be pain free or I'm going to lose 150 pounds or I'm going to eat perfectly. And as soon as they have that first failure, like, well, I'm a failure, so might as well go back to my normal. And then they kind of go in that, you know, spiral of like, well, I I failed, hence I am not worthy and then I'm not going to do more. And then they basically, you know, give up. So the patients that I have who have gained 200 pounds over the last, like, what are 15, 20 years because of a number of reasons, that's usually where it starts off. They fail. And they feel like, you know, I'm an imposter. I can't do this. And so I'm just going to leave it. So, you know, for my patients, I, I train them more about, you know, you are going to fail. So be ready for that. And when you're going to fail, you're going to have some accountability. Accountability is your trainer, your nutritionist, your physician. I am your partner in this. So regardless of being a weight loss thing or gaining muscle or a pain issue, you are going to fail. But we are going to keep you on track. And you got to set the appropriate goals. 
your goal should not be, I'm going to lose 150 pounds. It should be, I should feel better. I should feel stronger. I should have better sleep. Have appropriate goals at the right time makes a significant difference in accountability. Yeah. And I think um, because you have dealt with a lot of patients that are going with that route and the kind of the goal of your practice that you founded is to help patients with weight loss, kind of on your website, it says with maybe specific medical conditions where they might not be able to lose weight otherwise. Um, are there some like different practical tips or what practical tips do you have for these people who are trying to become healthier and practice preventive medicine in a sense of like losing weight, getting healthier and in that yeah, sense? Yeah, sure. What I've seen and you know, the science actually proves it is 75% of weight loss is what you eat. So if you don't have control over what you eat, then you're not going to be successful. I mean, you might be successful to be well, stronger if you exercise and that kind of stuff, but you're, uh, it's all about intake, <laughs> you know, majority of the time. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, movement is good, but you can't expect someone who's a couch potato all of a sudden start running and exercising and crossfitting. And that's usually when you have injuries. So we'll talk about that as well. But, you know, um, you know, with our practice and, you know, there's enough evidence of this that uh, patients trust physicians. That's still there. Thank God for that. Um, and a lot of times, even though they get information from social media and Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, whatever, but if a physician makes them accountable for uh, losing weight, uh, stopping smoking, exercising, they need to listen to the physician. But it's not just a matter of saying, okay, I want you to exercise. It's a matter of like, what's the next step? What type of exercise? So I'm a diabetic. Is a diabetic going to work out the exact same way as a thyroid patient? or the diet can do the same or not. So it has to be customized to the patient. Unfortunately, with the way the medical system is right now and not enough time is spent on preventative medicine, not enough discussion is held in medical school or residency, or you know, you have to go out of your way to learn this stuff. I have to go out of my way. I went to a DO school. I barely got any training in nutrition. You know, you have lectures about carbs and proteins, and then an internship, forget it, you're working hard. You know, you're just focusing on keeping the patients alive. Residency, you get specialized in certain things. Unless you do a fellowship in integrative medicine or there's not enough knowledge that is given to you while you're training to go out of your way, which is unfortunate, no, no doubt. This should be residency uh, curriculum that's based every, doesn't matter which residency you do, it doesn't matter if you do orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, or pediatric, or oncology should be a rotation on just nutrition and fitness and wellness, but that's not happening right now. Regardless, the point is that, you know, not every single patient is treated the same way. It is based on their medical issues, their medicine, their psychological uh, you know, background and their current status. And then obviously hormones and uh, food allergies. I mean, there's so much that goes along with that. Supplements, it's, it's complicated. And I know that I can do it all, which is why, you know, we have a nutritionist on staff, a personal trainer, chiropractor, a functional medicine physician. I can't do it all, but if they come to see me for a specific injury or pain or whatever issue, if I'm the team captain, and I'm the leader, and I held them accountable and I give them feedback on how they're doing when they fail, it, it motivates them to keep on doing it. So that's where I keep myself as, you know, grounded. Like, okay, I'm going to talk to you about this is an appropriate goal. This, these are your tools, but if you fail, I'm here for you. It's a partnership. I like that approach. So when you're, when you're working with a patient, um, like I, obviously, you know, specifically, you know, one of the things uh, in physiatry, which I'll let you kind of expound on, you know, what is physiatry, you know, what are the goals, you know, how did it become uh, an individual practice, that sort of thing. But I think pain is one of the main reasons people go to the doctor, especially, you know, chronic low back pain um, and chronic pain in the United States is a, is a big issue. So um, knowing that pain is a very complex multifactorial 
um, experience. How do you go from point A to point B in a patient who has no understanding of, they just know that they're in pain. How do you take them through that education and kind of explaining how things are going to progress forward? And also to set those ex expectations of, you know, I'm, my expectation is not to be 100% pain-free. It's to restore function or whatever the goals you set are. How do you walk them through that? Sure. Well, talking about physiatry itself, physiatry itself is a specialty that's based on function and it's improving function or optimizing function uh, of every, any body part. Obviously, the MSK neuroorthopedic systems, not the organs itself. Uh, the specialty came out of uh, back in the 40s and 50s after World War II uh, with all the patients coming back on the 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 uh, sorry the military coming back with injuries with amputations and that kind of stuff and then is slowly kind of uh, evolved into managing brain injuries spinal cord injuries stroke MSK sports uh, pain and this is kind of expanded all over the place but the goal the goal is still function uh, that said you know with the patients that have chronic pain chronic pain by itself we can talk about it for three hours. Chronic pain uh, is different from acute pain in the sense that acute pain is if you sprain your ankle and you have inflammation there and you, uh, you know, put ice on it, you mobilize it, you do anything you can to help calm it down. And typically for people our age, that gets better. But when acute pain is uncontrolled, it starts changing the neural nervous system, the neurobiological system, and that makes it uh, much more difficult to improve and actually starts affecting your hormones and uh, serotonin system. And I mean, it just affects everything. It becomes more of a psychological thing than more of a, uh, pathological thing. They still have pathology though. So the barriers in chronic pain patients, you have to tell them make appropriate goals. for them. So, you know, by saying that your, your pain might not go away. And a lot of times they're the reason they are clinging on to their pain medicine or different surgeries, they go and get different injections is usually like, well, I'm going to find the cure. I'm going to find the magic bullet magic pill, the magic surgery that's going to fix me. But unfortunately, there's no such thing. Um, you know, you have to make appropriate goals, educate them on that. And that sometimes can be a shock to them, but I'm okay with that shock. Someone has to tell them the story, the reason that was happening and why they might not get better. Because if they cling on to the fact that I'm going to get better, 100% better, then it's tough. So appropriate goals, as long as, like my goal for them is as long as you're functioning, as long as you're working, as long as you're enjoying stuff that you like to do normally, you know, that's a great goal to have. If you get anything above that, phenomenal. Uh, finding the cause of pain is a big thing that we have to do. And a lot of times they're un undiagnosed or underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed. And then, uh, you know, things that affect pain. And again, these are this is like long conversation is, you know, things that are inflammatory, smoking, eating uh, processed food, uh, you know, uh, all the stuff that goes on there, fat, fatty food, things like that. So, uh, you know, I educate them on that again, get the nutritionist on board. And then it's movement. Movement is key. So motion is lotion. Uh, that's my that's my uh, you know slogan for them. And you know obviously finding things that are affecting their motion. Maybe it's a knee issue, a back issue. And if I have some non-interventional or non-surgical ways to help them with that, a lot of times it's a matter of movement, strength, flexibility, core stability, uh, and honestly, if, even if you ignore all that, it's just movement. Start walking. Uh, start maybe, you know, uh, taking out your dog, uh, you know, just get out of the couch because as, as, a, as a, as a new, uh, you know, generation or even the old generation, all we do is sit, you know, sit to sit to sit and you can. So movement is good. Uh, and it's, it's complex, no doubt about it, but at the same time, you know, if you have appropriate goals for them and you kind of, it's almost like an onion, you take off one layer at a time, it could be the psychological layer. It could be 
food, it could be hormones, you know, typically you get to the real cause of pain and it helps them, you know, typically. And I think a lot of what you just said is very applicable to not only just uh, bring a patient from point A to B with like chronic pain or any of those other issues, but also kind of representative preventive medicine in general, where there's just so much that goes on in the field, uh, preventive medicine in terms of how much you have to account for, for the patient, because you're not only like talking about exercise and nutrition for this patient, because that's kind of like a ground zero for everyone, but you have to take into account their education level and how much they know, because you can't tell someone who doesn't know what a calorie is to count your calories. They're just not going to know right. what that is. So there's so much about like education. Um, there's finding out what the patient has access to. Um, like if they don't have a gym membership, then you have to make sure you account for that. And also one of the harder parts about preventive medicine, which you alluded to as well, is kind of that um, resiliency or the patient needing to do things themselves. Whereas that's probably one of the biggest challenges to preventive medicine, because it's not necessarily the physician just prescribing some intervention. Like you go to the hospital, get an injection, and then you're like good to go in terms of pain. It's more so the physician leading the patient through, you need to address this, this, and this. And then after that, we can start working on this. And then uh, we work towards a preventive measure that way. Um, whereas I think patients at this point seem like they just want like a pill to solve everything. And the hardest part about preventive medicine is kind of getting the patient to understand that this is you that needs to do these things. Um, I'm here to guide you and give you information along the way, but it's all up to you to do it. Yeah, you got to have a large mind. amount of first responsibility. Right. You got to buy in. Mm -hmm. The patient has to really, truly believe that's going to help, you know, help them. So for the buy-in for me, the way that I do it is I create a partnership that, um, you know, so we are a partner in this. This is a long-term goal. It's not going to happen overnight. There's no spe special pill. It's always asked me, is there a pill that will help you lose weight? Or is there one pill that's going to, you know, fix all my, my food, you know, issues? Uh, not necessarily, but this is a partnership. It's a long track. You have many failures. Uh, when you have failures, I'm here to help you with that your body is your body and your, your, your hormonal balance and everything is specific to you. And I can't fix it in one day, but we can get there. And then to give them an idea, a lot of times what I do is I'm sure, you know, we should do that is what is your life going to be when things are better? So giving them that, that, you know, that future image of their ideal self makes a significant difference. Cause usually I tell them like, you'll be able to play with your grandchildren. You'll be able to uh, you know, go out hiking, or you could be able to run a 5k you always want to run or be pain free. So giving them that perspective of what you know, the ideal says, setup is will help them. And that's what I do in my normal life as well. You know, like I was talking about before, you know, I, the failures that I had. Uh, so I'm, I ignore the failures because I'm looking at the end result or what I'm going to be at, at the end. I want to be a physician. So it doesn't matter if I fail multiple times, I'm going to get there. So same thing. I want to be my ideal self. I'm going to fail in the middle but I'll get there eventually. Mm -hmm. It's so funny. You talked about providing that like ideal picture of what their life would be like if um, they do practice preventive medicine. And now I'm not sure if I got that from you or if I had a similar idea, but I always talk about like imagining um, being able to run around with the grandchildren. Like even I actually have said going for a hike and doing all these other things like traveling the world that you would want to. Right. Um, but is there kind of another way to help patients buy in and like, kind of describing to them what preventive medicine is and other than um, kind of showing them that this is what your life could be like, is there a better way to help patients buy into There's that no paradigm? better way for the buy-in than uh, asking them how they feel once they do it for a week or a month, you know, mm -hmm. because typically when someone comes in with like knee pain and I say, you know what, how about we make it the simplest thing possible? Why don't you cut off the gluten for a week and come back in two weeks and tell me how you feel. And 
honestly, I don't know if it's uh, placebo or not, but obviously it's not placebo long-term, but in the short term, within a week, they come back and say, you know what, my, my pain is gone because I'm not eating processed food anymore. Here you go. If you want to feel even better, then this is how we get there. And a lot of times, you know, people just don't know. And I've noticed that for myself as well, my patients is that they don't know how well they can feel until they feel that. So they might think that their current state that they're in, this is the best that I can feel. But once they get to that next level, like, wow, I feel I'm sleeping better. I have less stress. Mm -hmm. You say, oh, if this is how I can feel, I wonder how much better I can be. So that is the perfect buy-in. Now, obviously, you'll have failures. And, you know, in the beginning, I was really frustrated. And I'm sure you will be as well when you start off a practice or anybody that, you know, the patients tell them to stop smoking, stop, you know, start exercising. And they come back and say, well, I never did that. I honestly, in the beginning, I was very frustrated with that. I was like, why are you, why is, not, why is it not happening? Why is what I'm telling you not coming through? But in the end of the day, this is your body and you have to do what's best for you. I'm going to give you the best advice possible. If you don't want to follow it, don't. People in my family, same thing. They don't follow my advice. I'm sure people, you know, you know similar examples, but it's okay. Don't get frustrated. It's okay. You know, you lead by example. You do the best that you can. I, I still exercise. I, you know, do whatever I can. I'm not going to tell my patients not to smoke if I smoke, you know, things like that. I'm, I'm going to work out, so they see me working out. But it's okay to have failures. The best buy-in is how they feel themselves because then they have an idea of what you're trying to do. And so kind of just a bridge to that. So we keep, talk, we keep saying preventive medicine and, and, and kind of just talking about it. In your, in your words, in your mind, can you define what you view as preventive medicine? Sure. Preventive medicine is uh, to... Basically, I mean, the way that it said is to prevent things from getting worse or to prevent chronic medical issues or to prevent your function to deteriorate over time. I think one of the barriers that I have with my patients is they really don't know how a 50-year-old should feel or a 40-year-old should feel or a 65-year-old should feel. Even older, I have, my oldest patient is 105, you know, so because they... They don't, they, don't, uh, they don't know another maybe a 50-year-old who feels great. Or maybe they do. They know one person, oh, yeah, I have a cousin of mine who's 50 and he runs marathons, but he's, he's weird, you know. But they don't understand what, an, uh, what a 50-year-old should feel. Um, I have patients in their 70s and they, they, their labs and their x-rays and their uh, physical well-being is the same as a 30-year-old. So, you know, um, Preventative medicine is to prevent these chronic complications, obviously, to, to do anything you can to uh, mitigate that. At the same time, for people to understand that they really you know, can be an optimal self, you know, based on what mm -hmm. other people might be doing. Um, as a follow-up question to that, um, I know physiatry is, uh, in general, and for those who are listening to this, physiatry is essentially anyone who practices within the field of PM&R, physical medicine and rehab, um, that's especially the doctor he practices in, but physiatry generally, when you look at it, it's kind of a post-acute type field where either someone has had a stroke, they've had a traumatic brain injury, they've had some sort of accident and all this stuff has already happened. And it's kind of up to the physiatrist to, um, manage it and help that patient restore their function, right? But is there a role for physiatry in preventive medicine? And what, what do you see that role being? Well, uh, unfortunately, you know, when these patients, uh, it starts off like physiatry itself also does PEDS. So we, we start off um, at one week old baby as well. You know, and we, we take care of patients up to the age of 105, 110. So we were so, so, so uh, wide. So if you talk about pediatric patients, uh, for example, uh, a pediatric patient who has cerebral palsy, 
or has spina bifida. So in that case, you know, considering our, our background, considering the research, we can talk to families and, and talk to their caregivers about what are certain things can, that can happen in the future if the uh, you know, CP patient or a spina bifida patient does not get adequate therapy or adequate nutrition. So because of the inside the house, they need appropriate vitamin D level. Um, you know, if they don't get enough rehab, they get contractures. I mean, that's the basic stuff for repeats. And then as it goes up mm-hmm. further up, you know, preventive medicine for, uh, we know that uh, the risk of osteoporosis for someone who is uh, Caucasian female thin. So by encouraging them before they get the osteoporosis to start doing some weight bearing exercises uh, to gain muscle because they, they are already prone to osteoporosis, uh, getting enough calcium, vitamin D, um, and then, you know, uh, getting the, the scans to, you know, catch it before it actually becomes a compression fracture, to catch it before they have a fall. A, a big part of my practice is fall prevention. So I know that after a certain age, especially if you have a certain number of medical issues, you're a significant risk for falls. And so falls are one of the most expensive things that we take care of in the healthcare system uh, because they usually lead to fractures and they almost always lead to decline in function post-fall and the fear of fall. I mean, this is a very, uh, you know, a broad, um, you know, question to answer, but uh, with our, mm-hmm. our training, you know, we can actually predict a stroke patient, what kind of issues they'll have. Now that someone has stroke, they're immobile, hence they'll be, they'll gain weight, hence they'll become diabetic, hence they'll end up getting ulcers, hence they'll get an amputation. So I, we can see, I can see the trend way before. So my goal at that point after a stroke is not just, well, if a stroke now you're going to have to basically deal with it is, Okay, now is the time to start managing your your uh, your intake, your, uh, and not just to take up smoking because the chance of having a stroke again is really high. So you know, having trained in the academic center, obviously, and you know, I spent a lot of time in neurology and other practices. Barely any time was spent with counseling about preventing the next thing from happening. Once you have a stroke, there should be enough discussion about how to prevent a second stroke. Once you have a fracture, there should be enough discussion about how to prevent the next fracture. Because uh, uh, the fear of fall, and again, I can go on about this, is fear of fall is a significant issue for uh, decline in patients. Because when they fear falling, they might have had a fall, which actually didn't cause any injury. But once they have that fear, it makes them less likely to be active. And once they're less active, then they have more decline, which makes them more likely to have more falls. So one of the barriers that I have to do with my patients, because majority of them are um, 65 and above, is to get rid of that fear of fall. And how does that fear of fall uh, go away is therapy and exercising. And once they can become confident enough, then they have less fear. So that PMNR is a big part of us is actually preventive medicine. I think what you said a lot about um, like prevention at different stages, going all the way from pediatrics to those older patients is uh, prevention can be implemented almost anywhere. And it doesn't necessarily just have to be in like healthy patients that are like between the ages of 20 and like 50 that have had no conditions. It can also be in patients, as you just mentioned, who have had a stroke, but how do we prevent the next stroke? So when I was on like uh, my neuro rotation, um, we obviously dealt with a lot of stroke patients and obviously you deal with the acute stroke there. But I think the physician that I was working with did a fantastic job of also making sure with every single patient to address the stroke risk factors, to try to mitigate those for the next stroke because someone may have suffered a stroke and it could be like not that bad, not that consequential, but if they don't change anything, they could have another one, which ends up being like the one that gives them significant uh, disabilities. So I think it's also important to not only look at preventive medicine in the scope of just healthy patients, but also in those patients that have already maybe suffered something, but 
how to prevent the next thing. And I love that you mentioned that. And one thing I like that you said too, and we talk, uh, uh, and I talk about a lot is, is building resiliency in individuals that we see and people we work with. And I think that, you know, almost it's like a re-identification of self for someone who had a fall, they had a stroke, they had a car accident, something big happened to them, but there's still all these other things where preventive of future things, future bad or adverse events is still possible. Um, and basically having them kind of build up that resiliency to not be afraid of falling, to go out there and exercise, to change their diet. And it, it kind of allows them to, to rebuild that view of self and into a more resilient um, functioning human being. And I think that really has a, a strong, uh, a stronger impact on quality of life, especially 65 and older, like you're mentioning, I think, you know, as we shift gears and think about quality of life towards the latter, the, the, you know, the latter portion of life, I think all these things in preventive medicine are still very important, but we don't really think about them because it's, well, it's, it's elderly folks, but, or, you know, people kind of have that, like, you know, it's whatever they're supposed to be frail. They're supposed to be, but in reality, we can, change that paradigm, hopefully, and make people kind of change that thought process into, well, 65 doesn't have to mean or 75 doesn't have to mean I'm stuck at home and that sort of thing. And uh, I think one of the, I read a book, uh, Lifespan by David Sinclair. I don't know if either of you read that, but essentially it talks about how the human lifespan is starting to increase and with novel um, therapies or interventions that are upcoming that the author of this, who is a researcher at Harvard, I believe the institution was, um, but he says that humans will, he doesn't uh, leave out the possibility that they're going to live to 120 and 150. And then you have all these people that are like reaching their sixties and they're like, all right, we're at the end of life. It's all right for me to be frail. Um, I can just sit here and do nothing all day. It'll be, I'm going to die anyway. But when we look to the future, if people do actually start living to 120 and 150, it's important to start developing that resiliency, as Jason talked about, into these patients. Because if you're at 60 years old and you're living to 120, you're only 50% done. And living as like a couch potato and not doing anything for 60 years just sounds absolutely horrendous. So kind of incorporating preventive medicine is even more important now if this does happen, because you want to make sure that people are able to have function at 100 to 110 years old if they do live for however long they're supposed to, to 150 or yeah, and it's not obviously not about how long you live, how you live. So I told my patients that I'm adding, exactly. I'm trying to add a life into years, not years into your life. You know, I mean, a cancer doctor or oncologist will look at 0.1 increase in uh, you know life expectancy, or you know even like you know one month or one week. I mean, for me, that's not important. It's that extra month or year or you know decade that you have. How are you actually living in that time? You know, so because I have plenty of patients who are palliative or hospice or bed bound and things like that. And I'm like, I really, is there really worth living in that, in that you know, setting? Um, obviously I'm not gonna, you know, uh, encourage them to not take care of themselves. But one of the things I've realized over time is, uh, you know, 10 years into practice is that um, I pretty much have realized that patients don't know. Uh, you know, we can assume they know, but they don't know. So, you know, I'm talking about simple things like taking ibuprofen every day or taking a sleep sleeping pill or even smoking. And they don't realize that if you quit smoking, you can actually reverse some of the damage and say, well, I've already smoked for long enough. Like, what's the point of quitting now? Or how much of an impact food can have on their, on their uh, well-being? And, 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 you know, uh, living in a house that has mold, obviously things like that, you know, some things they have control over, some they don't have control over. But even my 85-year-old, I'll give them the same advice I would give to a 25-year-old. You can make changes. You can feel better. 
So there's no, there's no like limit of when do you, in, you know, interject and start doing preventive medicine. Um, kind of shifting gears just a little bit. Um, we've talked a lot about like acute care and different things, maybe in the elderly population, which is one of the populations that you take care of. But um, on the other hand, you also have your other practice, um, the Optima Health Medical Fitness. What was the goal behind starting that? Because to my knowledge, you treat like a completely different set of patients there versus what you do at uh, Integrated Rehab Consultants. So there's a, there's a mix of patients in the both settings. Uh, obviously, in my optimal health medical fitness setting, I still have pediatric patients, and my other practice is most mostly geriatric. Uh, but for the optimal health medical fitness, the idea came about with my frustration with patients coming in with knee pain or back pain, and you know the only thing that was in my toolbox at that point as a physiatrist, pretty much any physician would be, well, I want you to go do therapy. Uh, you know, I want you to take some medications and I want you to lose some weight and go see a nutritionist or see a, uh, you know, go, go join a gym. Uh, but I realized pretty quickly that just telling them to go join a gym is not enough because even if they go join a gym, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to work out. And a lot of times they get hurt, come back. Uh, seeing a nutritionist was difficult for them, sometimes unaffordable, sometimes too difficult, too regimented. So uh, I wanted to bring the control back and actually, uh, you know, have a, a team of clinicians, and I call them clinicians because even though they're personal trainers, but I still think they're working in a clinic setting, to bring them all on the same roof and work as a team and, and for the patient to know they have the resources. So I ended up hiring some personal trainers and I, I coached them, trained them, got them into uh, certain certification programs to have them understand the medical issues behind or uh, complexity behind some medical issues. And then now I have a patient who comes in with knee pain. Uh, my initial goal is to diagnose the knee pain, then I might send them for therapy if they need physical therapy, but a lot of times all they need is movement. And then the trainer takes on board and does functional movement, uh, regular strengthening, flexibility, and all based on them. It's not a group class in which you have you know, 20, 30 uh, you know, patients working out and which you don't have control over uh, body mechanisms, that kind of stuff is all based on one-on-one -on -one stuff. And then once, if they are not able to continue the, the exercising, then I come, come back into the picture and which I might do injections and do for things in some of these surgery. But the goal was to have a functional medicine doctor, a chiropractor, all the different, you know, uh, specialties under the same roof to give the patient the best chance of recovery versus going to orthopedic surgeon or some of that in which you say, well, you failed therapy, you failed injection, now the next step is only surgery. So I want to give them a chance to recover without surgery. Uh, one, of the, one of the other things there is that um, kind of uh, when it goes towards entrepreneurship, we're getting back to this. I kind of wanted to save this until a little sure. bit later, but we're already there, so might as well. But one of the paradigms within kind of our world is that entrepreneurship is there to solve problems. And when you look at like a pure entrepreneur in the ideal sense, it's someone who's trying to solve a problem, create some sort of service, and then provide some value to the world to solve that problem and hopefully um, does well at that while also receiving compensation and kind of bringing the world towards a better place and alleviating that problem. So it gets a little bit difficult when it comes to healthcare and entrepreneurship, because there's just a massive medical industrial complex that's already churning in the background. And we've already known there's so many different problems in this healthcare system. And you have a call for, um, 
the public option for healthcare. There's so many different ideas regarding healthcare. And now with the coronavirus uh, pandemic that has happened, it's highlighted a lot of additional issues between like administration and physicians and just different tensions that are there. So do you think that entrepreneurship within medicine is a practical solution going forward? And how do, do those two kind of mix and go hand in hand or no? It has to go hand in hand. I mean, we are the frontline clinicians, right? So we are the ones finding these issues. Uh, sure, we can have an IT person or a tech person who comes in and finds that niche and you know, figures it out uh, uh, from their standpoint. And you guys obviously use EMR systems and you understand why EMRs are so frustrating. It's because typically they're made by tech. They're made by IT and that kind mm. of stuff. They do a great job. I don't want to learn what they do. But at the same time, if you don't have clinicians involved early on, uh, then EMRs are almost always frustrating. So as a company ourselves, you know, we were frustrated with the EMRs out there. So basically me and a couple of people, we basically made our own EMR from scratch. And basically I give the feedback using, using my own clinical judgment. So that's one part of entrepreneurship. But the, the, uh, going back to the fact is that physicians have to be frontline in this. Uh, you know, we're, we're the ones who have these issues uh, and we're the ones who can actually find the best possible solution for them but we can't do it by ourselves. You have to have other people who know what they do. And that's one of the things that I've learned as a leader is I can't do it all. I should know how to do majority of things or at least I shouldn't have an idea. I shouldn't be you know, completely clueless about certain things, but at the same time, I'm not an expert at everything. So for example, making a website, you know, can I, could I have gone and learned how to do WordPress or coding? Absolutely, but I, but I knew what I wanted and I know enough about it to know when it doesn't look right, but I hired someone to help me with that. So the same thing with that, you know, with entrepreneurship in the medical setting, you basically have to find the problem and there's plenty of problems. And only where you find the problems are when you're in it. You, you might've already seen some issues that you're like, you know, I wonder why that's happening and why this is so slow. Um, and then finding the appropriate solution and then going to the next step of making it, make, you know, finding out if there's actually something's needed. A lot of times, you know, there are certain, uh, you know, things that we don't even realize we need until we have it. Uh, for example, a quick example of a friend of mine who basically created this one thing. So in the, in the hospital setting, you have catheter bags or Foley catheters. So the way it works is that you have a, obviously a catheter and then you have a bag uh, you know, next to the patient and the nurse has to go in to see exactly how much was excreted by the patient's kidney. But my friend came up with an idea that how about we create a small valve that goes into the catheter bag and then through Bluetooth, it connects with the computer system and tells the staff how much urine was secreted. And then you have an exact idea of per hour. He got that idea basically because he had a problem. He found a solution. He found tech people to work with him to create the, the patent for that, marketed it, and sold it. So that's just one example of it. There's hundreds of examples. Right now, with tech being such a big part of medicine, telemedicine, things like that, there's many other issues that you know we have out there. So anyway point is that we have to be frontline. So mm -hmm. kind of piggybacking off that in, in a more clinical sense. So um, PM&R is, is one of the areas that's kind of a, a burgeoning field within PM&R is regenerative medicine. Um, and it's one of those areas that I feel is still kind of like the the evidence is forthcoming, right? There's a lot of studies going on, but there's not as much to, to base. Um, you know, a lot of clinicians feel most comfortable practicing in an evidence-based sense most of the time. Um, so how do you balance that? How do you, how do you, like, what approach do you take personally when you're like, well, there's this great idea. I want to incorporate it, but I also don't know the data yet. So how do you work with that? Sure. Well, the underlying thing for all physicians should be do no harm. 
right? So if I, if I know that I'm not doing any harm and if I feel like it's something that I could potentially help them without causing harm, I'm more open to it. So for example, there's no over the years and you know, you've probably haven't experienced that much, but other physicians have a number of medicines that have come out that have been, you know, touted as the best medicine, it's gonna fix everything, and then they have to take it off the market because they actually cause harm. A big example of that is Vioxx, is a medicine back in the uh, early 2000s, so that was for arthritis. Everybody loved it, but guess what? It was taken off the market because it caused heart attacks. That's one example, there's a number of other things like that. So for me, I, you know, my goal is to, because everybody has innate ability to heal himself. You know, we have uh, enough of, uh, you know, if you have the right nutrition and exercise and no chronic issues and inflammation is not elevated, you have the ability to heal, heal yourself. If I can give you a boost to help you there, then I'm, I'm more open to it. Would I rather do a regenerative medicine injection, which again, uh, we'll talk about in a second is, or would I rather send you to surgery, which is not reversible? You know, I'm more towards regenerative medicine in that sense, because if I can prevent the surgery, I'm okay with that. Now, regenerative medicine is not new. It's been around for the last 30 years or so. It started off with, you know, people using it on, on the animals initially, and then became more of a, a you know, athlete, especially, a, you know, professional athletes, and then started trickling down to the normal population as it became more affordable and more research started coming out. But, uh, one part of regenerative medicine is PRP or platelet-rich plasma. Everybody has their own platelets. We take the platelets, concentrate them, inject them back into wherever the injury is. Now, over the years, there have been enough randomized control study trials now that for certain conditions, it is you know, proven to be working work better than steroid or nothing at all or therapy. But that aside, for regenerative medicine, for me and my practice, it is not my first thing that I offer. It is always diet, nutrition, exercise. Let's see if you can get that better without doing any injections and without taking many medications. If that does not improve, then I, based on evidence, I'm going to tell you exactly how, what I think will, could happen. So for a knee arthritis, is there a chance it'll improve or not improve based on the studies, the back, the neck, the shoulder, whatever part of the body it is, then giving them reasonable expectations of what could happen. Uh, regenerative medicine is not a magic pill that if you give one shot, it fixes everything. It's not going to fix a completely torn rotator cuff or a completely degenerated knee or disc in the back. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is a lot of doctors will give those promises and then they don't work and then you have bad press. And then based on that, then what your goals are. And then if it doesn't work, then you always have surgery. So, you know, for me, it's laying the foundation down with the patient about why it could work. What can you do now to make it work better over time? Because if they're a smoker, uh, obese patient with a number of chronic issues, I tell them right at the bat that it's not worth it to do regenerative medicine. You're paying out of pocket a lot of times. Uh, you know, it's, it's a low chance of working. You might as well go towards something else. A lot of times they're frustrated with that information because they come into the door and they say, I want stem cell injections. And I tell them like, you know, unfortunately stem cells are not enough evidence on it. And you know, if you, uh, th you know, they're frustrated because they want that quick fix. When I tell them you have to lose 50 pounds and then they're like, well, that's a lot of work I have to put in and they want that quick fix. So I think regenerative medicine over time is going to become stronger and stronger. And over time in my career, I've seen it going from being completely like uh, alternative medicine. No one wants to you know, even talk about it to majority of orthopedic surgeons doing it now in academic settings. You're getting, uh, you can get regenerative medicine and get PRP pro and all the academic hospitals to getting more and more, you know, uh, specific diagnosis based, 
And then I think over time, it's going to get more, you know, based on your genetics, maybe more, more based on your injury and things like that. And so when kind of like what, a, what I'm hearing you say that kind of seems like an important thing to highlight here is, is focusing on, I guess, the, um, the bigger rocks first, right? Like, you know, if they're a smoker, obese, poor diet, poor exercise, and then they also want regenerative medicine, your, fo- your focus at first is not, okay, let's give you the PRP. It's let's work on those big things, the diet, the exercise, all those things that maybe like if they're not taking care of those, PRP is going to have or whatever technique is going to have a, a lower efficacy in terms of their overall outcome. Um, one question I had for you is how do you balance placebo effect with that? Because um, it, placebo effects have been studied with so many different kind of um, therapies and it's something that you know you can't really necessarily control for in all settings, but um, it tends to have um, in, in the studies that I've seen a more prominent effect on physical medicine um, especially when you're talking about injections, surgeries, those types of things. So how do you balance kind of in your mind, okay, do I use the placebo in a positive way? Do I think this is a large part of it? Does the patient's personality profile go into that decision-making? So how do you arrive at, at kind of using that judgment? That's a very good question, actually. So, you know, we know from science that uh, any medicine itself has 30% placebo and injection actually has a 50% placebo effect. So, you know, um, so again, knowing that, you know, if someone does not have an improvement of 50% or more after an injection, then I'm not satisfied. I don't, I, I personally think that it didn't work. So with that in mind, based on the patient population, based on what their goals are, and also the goal, going back to the goal part, it, it's not that, okay, this will completely relieve your pain. My goals are more based on function. So I could only walk a block before, but now I can walk two blocks and they're 50% better. Uh, I couldn't bend my knees before, but now I can bend my knees. So having the specific goals is way more important than pain scores because pain scores are notoriously uh, difficult to manage because again, they're very subjective. It could be the time of the day. It could be underlying anxiety, depression that could make the pain score seem higher. It's more based on function. That helps a lot. And then the placebo effect, you know, if I, if I strongly believe that uh, a simple injection that I do that is not expensive, uh, that might be a trigger point injection. I don't know if you know what that is. A trigger point injection is basically in a tight muscle. You put a little bit of Novocaine in there to relieve the tightness of the muscle, help you with therapy. If a trigger point injection, low risk, extremely inexpensive, can give someone 50% improvement in function, I'm okay with that. But if, if it's a matter of like a stem cell, which are derived from amniotic cells or things like that that you hear about, uh, that's like $4,000 and that gives me a placebo effect. That's really expensive and the patient is going to be not satisfied. So that's a balance that I have in my practice. Other practice might not have that, but at the same, I, I don't tell the patient about placebo effect. You know, I think it's, um, it, it's, if, if you did, I, I guess it's probably okay. But at the same time, the positive encouragement or guiding them about what they should expect from an injection can help as well. Uh, so saying that this will help you a lot, this injection is going to help the symptoms a lot, can actually be very strong as well. The, the, the mind, body, and the, you know, is a very important uh, part of this because if I encourage them, if I tell them what they, sh- they should feel, a lot of times they feel good about it. And I think a lot of this also works with a sandwich approach where we talked about tackling the big rocks first, where you have like your diet, nutrition, you get all that in check first. Then if you need it, you go the regenerative medicine route. But then the important thing to note about that is placebo or not, if it helps the patient like 50% or greater, whatever improvement they get, they can snowball that into further improvement of their diet and exercise. So for example, let's say they were only able to walk beforehand and like, let's say you got them to walk. 
And that's obviously an improvement. And then now they're set for a PRP injection or whatever other type of regenerative medicine. Let's say they get that in their arthritic knee and it helps them more than 50%. Now they might be able to do some sort of resistance training or a little bit more exercise, maybe go into a pool and go walk in a pool, go swim. So I think that's also another important aspect of regenerative medicine where it's put someone in the uh, scope that they're able to do more out of their body. And that in the end, that entire sandwich approach kind of helps them out more than just doing nothing altogether. Also, yeah, and I think one of the things too is that like we discussed earlier uh, how important the therapeutic alliance is with the patient. And I think um, those sorts of interventions give them something tangible. Like I, you know, you, I went to see you know, Dr. Tariq and we talked about all these things and then he did this for me and it gives them a stepping stone to say like, well, he just didn't tell me to lose 50 pounds and then set me out the door. You know, it gives them something tangible to kind of feel like, okay, I can trust this person. They're trying to take care of me. And now I'll be more interested into, you know, this advice they have to give me. So maybe it's also a tool that we can use to kind of help build that patient physician alliance to kind of, I guess, uh, springboard that relationship. And the other thing, I guess, jumping off what I said and what you said as well just now is that preventive medicine doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily have to be just before something happens. Um, you can kind of use it after too and practice preventive medicine after um, an event. So for example, let's say this person does have an arthritic knee, they've had some sort of knee injury, we get them functioning, get them a PRP injection, get them feeling better, then they can start practicing preventive medicine to prevent them from a whole bunch of other issues. And that's also another aspect that's like all encompassing and it shows how preventive medicine kind of be used in any sense um, and for like a lot of different uh, applications. Right, absolutely. Yeah, one thing about regenerative medicine, which is frustrating for me the last like 10 years or so, is that there's no standardization. I create a standard for my patients. I know, you know, what they should not do beforehand. For example, they have to stop taking anti-inflammatory medication, which are, and, you know, anti-inflammatory. I want to create inflammation with regenerative medicine. Again, a topic by itself, but it's, it's an important thing to realize that, you know, PRP and, and stem cells are not going in to calm inflammation down, to actually increase inflammation, hence starting the whole inflammatory pathway to help the regeneration of the, the ligament or tear, whatever that is. So uh, creating standards is important. Uh, and majority of time, the reason that one physician has different outcomes than other physician or across the country is because there's no standard. The amount of PRP, the type of PRP, is it given by ultrasound or guidance or no guidance? Where's the stem cell coming from? What amount of stem cell is there? Is there a stem cell in there? There's like so much thing. And then for me, my standardization is that, you know, one week or is it three days of non-weight bearing? Is it a week of non-weight bearing? What type of things can they, can they do? What type of therapy can they have afterwards? How long is therapy for? Is there a second PRP injection? Is there an MRI after? I mean, these are like so many different levels of, of complexity in which like if there's no standardization, you really don't know. Uh, with me, what I've done in my practice, I've made a standard. So then I know I can predict, you know, I can tell the patient beforehand, this is what I expect in one week, in two weeks, and five weeks or six weeks, whatever that is. And they have, you know, follow-ups based on that. And then if someone doesn't follow in that standard, then I know that I need to do something different. For anyone who's questioning about the inflammation thing, I know it might spark some questions where people are like, oh, I thought all inflammation was bad. Um, what Dr. Treek's mentioning there is that inflammation is actually kind of your body's healing process. And it kind of just sends a bunch of cells and different uh, cellular cascades that improve, um, I guess, the healing process in a, a way to put it. But then sometimes it goes awry. That's when you get to like your chronic inflammation, those things where it starts getting you chronic pain and whatnot. So that's a whole nuanced topic, as Dr. Treek was saying. Just want to clarify that not, not all inflammation is necessarily yeah, bad. Yeah, typically for orthopedic issues, inflammation is good. 
So if you have an ankle sprain and your ankle swells up, that is inflammation. Uh, I mean, there's a whole list of things that go along with that, with the uh, macrophages and the stem cells that come in and they kind of, you know, clear up the junk and they, it, there's new vascular supply that starts and all that stuff is part of inflammation. But when something doesn't improve in the right amount of time and it becomes chronic inflammation, it becomes scar tissue and things like that, that's when it becomes more difficult to manage. Always had have had back pain issues or neck, you know, issues or you know, we typically if you have the right body metabolism or the right body uh, nutrition, you, you improve, you get better, uh, in this part of that. So taking, you know, putting a lot. That's why I'm, it's always a big debate between ice and heat. So should be ice and ankle, or should be heat the ankle? Because ice is anti-inflammatory. So you, are you slowing things down? And also a big debate about taking anti-inflammatory medication, like ibuprofen, leave. Because if they're reducing inflammation, then you might be potentially causing the injury to actually get worse over time. So we right now we're about an hour into this podcast, a little bit before that. So before we start wrapping up, um, kind of as a final question, if someone comes to you in their practice or not even while you're practicing, just like they run into a coffee shop and they know you're this amazing physician, they, and then for like two minutes, they, you have two minutes and they ask you, how do I get healthier? How do I practice preventive medicine? What do you tell them? So my first uh, thing is uh, really keep, uh, keep an eye on what you eat because your intake is something you have complete control over. And um, it's difficult to do because it's so easy to buy that uh, you know, latte or the cupcake and things like that. But really keep an eye on what you're eating because it's all about that. Move, even if you move a tiny bit every day and slowly increase that is always a good thing because movement is any time of your life is a good thing to do. Uh, you know, analyze everything that you're, uh, that's going into your body, whether it be gluten or it could be, uh, you know, the bacon, or it could be smoking or alcohol because your body is a temple and you have control over this, all the stuff you might not have control over. You need to keep an eye on how you manage this because if you don't take care of it now, then it's going to come back to haunt you later. And, you know, kind of a side topic, and that's probably my, my spiel for that, is, you know, obviously we're in the middle of this COVID stuff right now, uh, significant crisis. But there's enough evidence right now that shows that people who were, are active and who have less chronic medical issues are the ones surviving this. And they get significant less uh, cases. And one example is that I, I saw, and it's really important, is that uh, they studied astronauts, because astronauts obviously go to space and they stay for six months or longer or years sometimes, is that... Uh, they, uh, the, the astronauts were in better shape before they went to space had a significant less chance of con contracting or getting the flu or things like that in space. And also astronauts who stayed in space and were active there, when they came back to Earth, they had a significant less chance of getting any of these viruses, corona, influenza, things like that. So right now, because we're in quarantine, a social uh, you know, distancing does not mean that we should not be active. So exercising every day is still an important part of it. So if I was talking to someone, I talk to my family members about this and my friends is that exercise as much or more as you did before. And it doesn't have to be lifting heavy weight. It could just be cardiovascular stuff like running, jumping jacks, anything you want to do at home, because eventually a lot of us will get the virus anyway. It, you, the, the stronger you are now, the better the chance of survive. Wow. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if that fit in the two minutes though. <laughs> <laughs> you might've run out of time. But um, thanks for this uh, podcast. We talked about so many different things. We kind of spanned this span of whatever there is to talk about in preventive medicine and kind of representation of how varied the field of physiatry is and varied on what you do 
within your life and how you um, practice medicine. Um, is there anything you want to plug? I know you're not on Instagram or really on YouTube, but is there anything you want to plug? Uh, just with my website, it's uh, optimalhealthmedicalfitness.com. So, um, you know, I don't really do a lot of blogging and YouTubing and I obviously encourage you to do it, which is a good thing. I have staff <laughs> that does it. I stay on social media uh, for a number of reasons, but I get enough information from other places. But, um, you know, I think you're a good resource. Obviously, if they're not following me, they should follow you because I feel like you keep up with all these things. All right. So you heard it. If you are in the Chicagoland area, head to Optimal Opt. Why can I never say that? Optimal Health Medical Fitness. And uh, they will help you out with whatever you need in terms of practicing preventive medicine, just pain. So um, thank you, Dr. Tariq, very much for this podcast. Thank you for joining us for your time. Thanks. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at Prevent Podcast. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Thank you all for listening and we will see you next time.